History. It's a pleasure to welcome you aboard. My name is Captain Eric, and on this week's episode, we are celebrating some Nickelodeon anniversaries that have taken place in between the times of December 18th to December 24th, which, if you happen to celebrate Christmas, I hope you are having a Merry Christmas. I hope someone out there is listening to this episode on Christmas Eve. If that's happening, I hope you're on the nice list. And if you're celebrating any other holiday during the season, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, I hope you're having a wonderful one. I hope it's a good one for you, regardless on the circumstances. And this week in Nickelodeon history, we're actually starting all the way back, back to a show that uh, started and ended before I was born, so you know I certainly will have a ton to talk about it. But it's a show that apparently ended its run in December. There was a, hold on, there was a date set to this show, Kids' Rights, and then all of a sudden... Just wasn't here, and uh, it's all about preparation here, ladies and germs. But uh, yeah, the show started its run on Christmas Day on December 25th, 1981, 41 years ago, and ended its run on December 20th, 1987, 35 years ago. Kids' Rights was actually based almost entirely off of the creativity of its viewers, the main cast, which included Jim Mayers, Wynn White, Carlo Grossman, John Rougeau, and Steve Kifkin, would wear jumpsuits, and the entire premise was that short stories and skits would be mailed to the show from kids watching all around the country, and then these actors would reenact these skits, these stories, these moments right on stage, very similar to shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway, where they're just getting fed information and and having to just be on the fly, unique with what's going on. I have never watched an episode of, of Kids' Rights. Um, it might be something down the line I'll have to get into. The show was created by Jim Mayers himself, who also directed and starred in the show and was also apparently behind the music as well, so Jim just literally holding this entire show in his back. Um, if you have any experience watching Kids' Rights, if you have any recommendations, there was only one season of 17 episodes, uh, you can email me at nickelodeonhistory at gmail.com. On December 24th, 1996, which was 26 years ago, we had the final episode of Roundhouse, a show created by Buddy Sheffield and Rita Sheffield Hester. The show ran for four seasons of 52 episodes. Another live-action comedy with skits in a completely different way than what they were doing over with uh, kids' rights. Uh, Roundhouse was a show that everly evolved as the show was going on. You never got too comfortable in one setting. The entire show was about this group 
of friends, this family and their problems. And in front of a live audience, they would break out into different dance segments, into different small sketches, into different parts of the show with different ongoing characters. It was like all that, but instead of building the sets, it was a moving show. There was always some part of Roundhouse going on. And instead of um, a live you know, performance being at the end of the show, like and all that, you almost had that chopped up into many musical bits throughout the show. There was always something going on on Roundhouse. The, the show was, like I said, ever evolving, even within a single episode. So you never really got incredibly comfortable and, and something didn't really overstay its welcome. They would have a bit and within a few minutes they were on to the next bit. There was something else taking control. Uh, following the show's first season, cast member Dominic Lucero had a diagnosis of lymphoma that had to be treated and therefore would leave the show only reappearing for three episodes during the show's third season. Lucero, unfortunately, would pass during the fourth season of the show on July 1st, 1994. He was only 26 years old, which really makes me think of things at at my age. Uh, What a talent. What an absolute talent. Lucero was in the series finale in which we are talking about today that aired on December 24th was dedicated in his memory with the opening. This one's for our friend Dominic, who couldn't be here starting uh, the show at his request. His condition was not made public. The audience was unaware of what had happened as of the result. It was more of a shock in that moment. And um, it certainly was just, if you had watched during the four seasons of the show, you got to know a good chunk of this cast, even newer cast members, for a a lot of time and for a lot of different bits. So to lose somebody very early on, it's certainly heartbreaking. And I'm glad they, they went the extra mile there knowing, hey, this is our final show, so let's dedicate this last one for Dominic. And, and I really I really like that. I unfortunately was not watching this show much as a kid. It would come on, and it certainly was one of those shows that I would change the channel to. It just didn't catch me as a kid. But later on in life, I would be able to watch and enjoy Roundhouse for for what it is and what it represented, what it brought to the table. And uh, it's certainly a fun time. If you can watch an episode or two, I think it is uh, it's worth your uh, your precious time as you are devoting it right now to me. But uh, let's talk about a movie now. Not just any movie. One of the best Nickelodeon movies to ever be released in theaters. That's not... I don't think that's that's crazy to say this. And it's now of drinking age. 21 years ago, on December 21st, 2001, Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, released in theaters. Nickelodeon movies had original ideas. They certainly weren't just cranking out Nicktoon films. Remember Harriet the Spy? But Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius was a Hail Mary for Nickelodeon. It worked out for them in spades, where they had an original IP start out as a fairly successful theatrical film, leading into a TV series that was also fairly successful, On top of that, Jimmy Neutron himself 
becoming one of the most recognizable and connectable characters to the Nickelodeon brand up there with SpongeBob SquarePants and honestly up there with Tommy Pickles as well and Reptar. Jimmy Neutron, even today in 2022, is gaining more popularity. And I think we are on the cusp of something happening with Jimmy Neutron. I think Paramount Plus has been cranking out a ton of new animation in the forms of South Park and Beavis and Butthead. And I think, you know what? You got to bring back Jimmy Neutron. Make it a Paramount Plus exclusive. Put the money behind it. I guarantee you the buzz behind that will certainly bring new subscribers to the table. I guarantee it. And if it's good, the word of mouth is only going to strengthen. That's that's important. That's key. It's not just doing something. It's doing it well. So I hope we get a return of Jimmy Neutron. The movie was directed by John A. Davis with a screenplay by Davis, as well as J. David Stem, David N. Weiss, and Steve Odenkirk. And what a script. It is beautifully done. It's not the the most beautifully animated 3D movie ever, but come on. You need to remember, in 2001, this is only seven years or so removed, six or seven years after Toy Story was in theaters. And these things take a long time to be made. So to be made in that early heyday of 3D animation, there is a charm to the design of these characters in this world, and it only gets better throughout the run of the TV series, in my opinion. And I know that you can point to other, you know, forms of 3D animation that may be better in your opinion, but there's a level of charm with the designs of these characters and the world that is built around them and the way that it runs that just works. It just works on all cylinders. And what was genius about this entire process was Jimmy Neutron was basically sold to the higher-ups of Nickelodeon based off of a test pitch of animation of this character. And when it was decided that if they're going to go the full nine yards with this uh, animation, they might as well commit to both a television series and a movie with this character. And when those discussions were happening, it was decided that they should start with the movie because the money that goes into making these models and Retroville, and all of these other elements, the money they get for a film will be much higher, and therefore all of those assets will be made to a higher degree that then can be reused for the TV show. It's it's genius, and it worked out. It worked out in spades. The movie was released. It was made on a $30 million budget and brought $103 million at the box office on top of being one of the first animated films to be nominated for the Oscars' newly uh, Best Animated Feature uh, presentation, which they literally had to make after these animated movies were just being made to such a high degree. Beauty and the Beast, of course, was nominated for Best Picture back in its heyday, and that was just already a, a big achievement in its own right. But then you have Shrek and Jimmy Neutron and Monsters, Inc. all coming out, all these movies that they have to acknowledge. They're just that good. And the best animated feature category was created with Jimmy and Goddard making an appearance at the award show, which is always a highlight. It's always a nice little moment, even if he didn't win. And of course, the uh, Oscar went to Shrek. But Jimmy Neutron being nominated at the at the Academy Awards, that's a big deal. Of course, as mentioned, 
He would go on to star in his own show, The Adventures of Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, which would premiere less than a year later on July 20th, 2022 on Nickelodeon with a massive run and a massive cult following in its own right. Theme park rides and memes galore. Jimmy Neutron lives on in our hearts. And if you have never seen that first movie, I I can't recommend it enough. It's a good time. It really isn't that bad. It's a cutesy kids film, but there are moments that are genuinely still funny. Hugh Neutron, there's a lot of humor that still comes out of that character, even as far back as that movie. The way that this world runs, even in the first moments when Jimmy is being accosted by his parents for driving a rocket into their chimney, it's met with such nuance that it's like an everyday thing in their world for a kid like this to have his own rocket and the way that Jimmy's mom is approaching it. It's like, how many times have I told you to not leave your toys out on the lawn, but this time it's a kid inside of an actual rocket that the military is looking into. It's a crazy world. I love it. And watching that movie always brings back uh, a nice little nostalgic time. And, and even beyond those rose-tinted goggles, I do think the movie stands up in its own right for, for what it is. And I, I love it. I love it. If you worked on Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius in any capacity, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for making this film. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, NickelodeonHistory at gmail.com. Anybody uh, from that. But a year later, 20 years ago, on December 20th, 2002, there's a lot of twos there. I don't know if that's a that's a sign. I should I should do the Powerball. Never mind. December 20th, 2002, 20 years ago, The Wild Thornberries movie premiered in theaters, directed by Kathy Malkison and Jeff McGrath, and was made on a $25 million budget and made over $60 million at the box office, $60.7 million. Not bad, and I'm sure with some of that money in the Hollywood math that was used for promoting the movie, they made a modest profit, but not enough to make a full-fledged sequel of The Wild Thornberries, and having to cross over both The Wild Thornberries and The Rugrats for a film that would release a year later to uh, an even worse turnout at the box office, which was really disappointing on a lot of fronts because I honestly believe Rugrats Go Wild or what was originally called The Rugrats Meet The Wild Thornberries I think that really turned off Paramount from making a lot of Nickelodeon films, or Nicktoon films in particular. I think they still valued Nickelodeon movies as a moniker, but even though SpongeBob SquarePants in 2004 was a massive hit, it certainly seemed like, because of a few hiccups with the Wild Thornberries, Rugrats here, and Hey Arnold, they certainly were turned away from adapting more Nicktoons to the big screen, and I think they should. I'm not saying do a full-fledged Nicktoons movie, which I know has been mentioned in some articles, which just seems so off-brand. Unless they do a Who Framed Roger Rabbit-style setting where these characters can exist outside of their worlds and can even act differently, and, and they're basically actors. If it's presented like that, then a Nicktoons movie could absolutely work. But back to the Wild Thornberries movie, I, I enjoy the film, and even though it, in some regards, doesn't feel 
theatrical. I, I can't really explain it. I've watched the movie a, a few times, and it does elevate the story. It's certainly a bigger story than anything they've told on the show. But for some reason, it just doesn't feel more grand than it should. I, I, I can't explain it. It's tough. I understand Eliza having to witness this cheetah cub being taken by poachers. The poachers are genuinely terrifying in this movie, and, and I'll give them credit. The way that they wrote um, the dynamic between Eliza and the poachers and, and her just will to go after them and, and rescue this cub, and because she's able to talk to animals, have this deeper connection with what happened with the cub and not just be like, well, it is what it is. Uh, I, I do think it's a, it is a big movie. It's grand, but I don't know. There is just something missing from it. It feels like it doesn't get into that final gear of really being the Wild Thornberries movie. And I hope at least someone out there feels the same way I do. It, it still definitely feels like a bigger experience, but it feels like it could have been like a TV movie and it wouldn't have felt out of place. It wouldn't have felt like if you would have watched it on TV Man, this could have been on the big screen. You know, like when I've watched Abracatastrophe, there are moments in that movie that I'm like, man, this could have been on the big screen. When I watched Danny Phantom, The Ultimate Enemy, I'm like, man, there are moments that this could have been on the big screen if they put more budget behind it. But as a TV movie, I think the Wild Thornberries movie works better. It just, I don't know if I, watching that, Maybe I just need to watch it again in some capacity and, and have a different experience. But I do love it. I do love the story. I love the tale that they tell, the way that it's made, the experience that Eliza goes through. I wish we had more Nigel. I wish we had more Donnie. I wish we had more Debbie. Maybe that's a part of my problem is that we do get, you know, Eliza and Darwin get away from the family for a good chunk of the film that we do miss out on that whole family dynamic. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's maybe it's that where my angst for this comes from. But I do love it. If you haven't seen it, even if you have never watched The Wild Thornberries, I can say this uh, with, with the highest degree, you can still watch and enjoy The Wild Thornberries movie. You do not have to watch a lick of the show to enjoy this. They get you squared away and just enjoy the story that's that's being told in front of you. 11 years ago, on December 21st, 2011, the Nickelodeon movie The Adventures of Tintin premiered in theaters in America. It did premiere originally on October 23rd, uh, 2011 in Belgium and on October 25th in the UK. The Adventures of Tintin is a long-running comic book series which started being published all the way back in 1929, lasting almost 50 years until 1976, and beloved around the world even up until when the movie came out, found an entire new audience for The Adventures of Tintin, a series that was beloved enough by the creative forces behind this movie, Steven Spielberg, the director, and, of course, Peter Jackson, one of the producers of this movie. Uh, the screenplay was also written by Stephen Moffat, Edgar Wright, and Joe Cornish. I actually enjoy The Adventures of Tintin a ton, and what really disappoints me is knowing how much work and effort went into creating this movie. 
only for them to not want to tell more stories in this world in The Adventures of Tintin. Not that the want isn't there, but certainly there are so many moving parts to getting a movie like that done. And when you have creative minds like Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson, it, it can be tough. You're a busy person. And certainly The Adventures of Tintin can be important to you, but not be the, the number one item on your list. If you have never seen this movie, I think it's a wonderful time. And I hope one day they're able to create a sequel to it in, in some capacity. The budget for this movie was $135 million, and it took home $374 million at the box office. Getting out of the movie theaters and back into the TV screens and unfortunately on Nick.com for its final season... Eight years ago, on December 19th, 2014, we had the final episode of The Legend of Korra, the sequel series to Avatar The Last Airbender. The Legend of Korra was created by Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Kowietzko, and as forementioned, being a sequel to The Last Airbender, features the new Avatar, Korra, but not necessarily one that we have to follow learning the the various elements of the world. When we come into Korra's story, she has already learned the four elements and is just the active running avatar of the land, and we get to see what happens when there is a beacon of power, as in the avatar, in a world where there is guaranteed going to be people trying to step up and challenge that force. That's why I'm excited for the theatrical Avatar The Last Airbender movies that'll focus on Aang, you think the story ends right when he takes out the Fire Lord? No, 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 guys. This is classic wrestling 101. When the babyface finally conquers the heel and gets that championship and is on top of the mountain, they are now the number one hunted person in the wrestling federation. Everybody wants that belt. You've got a target on your back. And with the Avatar taking out the Fire Lord who runs the land, you don't think there's going to be other people to step up and challenge that Avatar and challenge him for his mantle? We get to see that play out in Korra's life a little bit. What it's like to be the new Avatar. And although I haven't finished the series, I, I know that there is a lot of love for it. It has a massively growing fan base. Even as I'm speaking, there are more people watching the show for the first time, falling in love with it. And the only other thing I got to say is just how disappointed I am in the fumbling of that final season of Nickelodeon. That was my Nick.com jab earlier for those that don't know, because at this point in time, you're just streaming the entire show and have no idea how it entirely aired for that final season. But for season four, The Legend of Korra, it was being strung along for the longest time on where it was going to be aired, the show, of course, was dropping in some sort of popularity, but you have new content on an ongoing channel. You can't find a place for it to air. It just doesn't make sense. And for how popular the show has, you know, eventually become, there there was an audience for this. They just had to properly promote it. And following Avatar The Last Airbender and for how big that was, it, it should have been a slam dunk. Halfway through the third season due to some episodes leaking, apparently, and some declining ratings, it was decided that The Legend of Korra would be taken off of Nickelodeon proper, and for every week, 
would be released straight to Nickelodeon's website, nick.com, including the entirety of the fourth season, which really deserved to air on screen. It was made for it, and even though it aired on a, on a computer screen, it didn't get to air on the channel it was meant for. And some believe that it's due to that final season and some elements about it that may have been some of the reasoning behind this poll. I don't know how much of that is true, and if there is any truth to that rumor, that is absolutely disgusting. But at this point in time, that's all in the past. Those are past mistakes that really don't matter. The show is over, can be enjoyed in its entirety on many different platforms, and at some point in time in the future... Korra will return in some regard. The legend of Korra will continue to be told in some some way, and I hope it's a good one. I hope when that movie comes out, I, I hope it's a banger. Seven years ago, on December 19th, 2015, the final episode of The Penguins of Madagascar premiered on Nickelodeon. Based on the characters created by Tom McGrath and Eric Darnell, the show is developed by Mark McCorkle and Bob Schooley, and ran for three seasons of 149 episodes. I went into more detail a few episodes ago on the November 28th episode of This Week in Nickelodeon History about the Penguins of Madagascar. I'm going to keep it short and sweet today and move on to another show that premiered seven years ago on December 23rd, 2015, the final episode of Talia in the Kitchen, a show created by Katharina Lebedoir and ran for one season of 40 episodes. Man, this one certainly hurts, but three years ago, on December 20th, 2019, we had the final episode of the revived Double Dare, or technically the second revival of Double Dare, brought to the screen with a new host, yet a returning face as well. Liza Koshy. Uh, the online content creator who just blew up in popularity comes to the stage as the new host of Double Dare. But joining her is, of course, Mark Summers as the mayor of Double Dare, there to be our announcer for the events and to be almost the master of ceremonies, if you will, over the entirety of the Double Dare experience. So the fact that Mark Summers is still there in person, I'm fine with, with Liza taking over most of the hosting duties, but it is still Double Dare at the end of the day. We've got questions. We've got dares. We've got double dares. We have physical challenges. And of course, we have the returning Slopsicle course. I love Double Dare. I need to compete in Double Dare at some point in my life. I need to show the world how I could dominate that Slopsicle course. I've studied it backwards, frontwards, inside and out. The hamster wheel, the nose, the pancakes, the waffles, Hopefully they're not blue, but we have a champion talking right here, Captain Eric. Boxing is overrated. We need to get into uh, content creator Double Dare, and uh, Captain Eric right here is is the guy. This is the guy. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't uh, just me talking out of my rear. Double Dare and the Legends of the Hidden Temple. I got two belts. Actually, you know what? I could get stumbled with history trivia on the temple. But I have a belt that says Master of the Hidden Temple. It has nothing to do about the trivia. I'm just saying the, the physical challenge of the temple. I'm the master, at least, of the silver monkey. You got to give me some sort of silver belt. But my gold belt right here on this side, Double Dare Champion. Don't forget about it. But yeah, 
Unfortunately, it had to end. And of course, what with what happened the following year, I think it was understandable. And you really can't do like a, a social distancing double dare. You know, I guess you could be creative with some of the physical challenges and the trivia part doesn't really need to be super close. But uh, yeah, you got to get sloppy and messy. And at that time, I don't think anybody wanted to get any sort of slop on them. They wanted to stay uber clean. So I, I understand the the end there, but I hope at some point Double Dare gets to return in some fashion, even if it's with just adults. Get it on Nick at Night, get it on TV Land, or let's just get this in syndication on CBS. Let's go the full nine yards. I think it's that big enough where you just add a little bit of alcohol into the mix and, and you can have a fun time on Double Dare. Wipeout is so popular and we can have... Just the grander version of Double Dare, which has bigger physical challenges, a bigger slapstickle course, something like what well, we can have fun with this. The champion knows there's more gas in the tank. Don't you worry. And that is going to be it for this week in Nickelodeon history. But for my top five of the week, since we were talking about the Legend of Korra so much, I figured I would give you my top five Avatar characters. Now, I haven't finished the Legend of Korra in its entirety, so I don't feel right in saying, you know, any of those characters can really withstand many of the original Last Airbender characters. I went through my list here. I don't think I've ever given my top five Avatar characters, and if I have on another list in a previous uh, uh, SpongePod Squarecast when I was doing This Week in Nickelodeon History, then I apologize. This is the new one, Um, but Number five, though, I am going to say is Korra, in in all honesty, because when I think about these ongoing stories and the story of Aang and how much I, I love that narrative and what happens with him, I do love the concept of coming into a well-adjusted teenager who has already accomplished what Aang was trying to do over the course of three seasons. She's already gotten, you know, the earthbending done, the firebending done, waterbending, airbending, She's still obviously learning how to be the Avatar, and I'm excited to go on that journey with her. So even knowing that I haven't finished the show, the purpose to go back and and actually finish it and watch it is due to the love I have for this character. I, I genuinely loved that first season. I don't know why I didn't catch on for the second or, or third ones. Um, something just could have been going on in my life or it might have been during the years I didn't even have cable. But uh, one of these days, I am going to go back into that story and finish it properly. Number four, as far as my favorite Avatar characters, is Toph, the blind, earthbending champion who defeated the Boulder, who was voiced by WWF legend Mick Foley, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got that here. Yeah, Mick Foley voicing the Boulder on two episodes, really hamming it up, just like his old rival and tag team partner, The Rock, of course, of the Rock and Sock connection. Uh, I love Toph as a character. I could talk more about Mick Foley, but this is all about Toph right now. Uh, Toph as a concept is a fantastic character, someone who has the impairment of, of being blind, but not letting that stop them at all in whatever they want to do. When we are introduced to Toph, she is essentially scamming people, running a ruse, and earning some notoriety in the meantime 
of of this girl who is quote unquote blind but has this ability that no one is aware of. She is able to earthbend and with this ability is more capable than you are aware of. Of course, when you take her off of the ground or put her in some sort of structure where she can't feel the ground, then her impairment becomes more front and center as, uh, as far as a problem is concerned. But if you have earth anywhere near you and you are attempting to engage in tough in combat, just know you're going to lose. Just know you're going to lose. Number three is Aang or Ang. If you decide you want to just change the name of an already named fictional character for your theatrical film, just saying only one of you out there probably want to do that. Aang is, of course, the main character and the mentioned in the title Last Airbender, who is found in an iceberg by other main characters Katara and Sokka who are not on this list, so let me get that spoiler out of the way. I love Katara and Sokka. They come across this boy in an iceberg and unyield him, the last airbender to exist after the Fire Nation completely wiped these nomads out. And Aang not only happens to be the last airbender, but he's also the Avatar, the one person who has the ability to yield all four of these elements and has a story in front of him that is is one of my favorites to always go down. A story where you're reborn and you're told that you have to kill somebody. Your ultimate goal is to learn all of these new techniques and you have to kill someone. And it's being told to a child that doesn't want to kill. And over the course of three seasons, not wanting to kill this man, but the universe almost having to force his hand where Aang creatively solves this situation and just one of the most beautiful finales I have ever seen of any television show. Uh, Aang, of course, I love him, is not my favorite character. I have two others in front of him whose stories I just adore. Number two on this list is Uncle Iroh, who is the mentor of Zuko throughout most of the show. And even though we are told at one point in this life, this man was one of the most ruthless firebenders on the planet, with his age and wisdom, he has almost ascended what the Fire Nation wants to do, and it's almost as if Uncle Iroh has the best head on his shoulders. And over time, Zuko starts learning from Uncle Iroh, and it's because of his uncle that he's able to mature enough to step up to his father. Now, I'm going to get this out of the way. My number one character on this list is Zuko. And it's because of this dynamic going from episode one to the final episode, or even just that final season on where we see Zuko end up and to see the man he ends up becoming is one of the beautiful parts of Avatar The Last Airbender. I think it's honestly a true yin-yang moment where not only are we watching Aang throughout this entire story grow as uh, a bender of all these different elements as the Avatar, we also see Zuko go from this hell-bent son who wants to just appease his father to listening to his uncle and knowing that there is more to the world and eventually turns away from his father's tyranny and ends up helping the last airbender here in his final moments, being his firebender teacher up for the final battle, in which he ends up taking his sister on head-to-head, 
in one of the best choreographed fight scenes of the entire show. Uh, Zuko's run, along with Uncle Iroh at his side, is my favorite aspect of The Last Airbender. And just, I love Uncle Iroh. You can't get to that good part of Zuko in season three without all of those teachings of, of Iroh. And knowing that this is a man that had to grow himself is also a teachable moment in its own right. It's nice there. If you've never watched Avatar The Last Airbender, I can't recommend it enough for you to, to dive into that whole The Legend of Korra as well once you're done with that, which I know I gotta, I gotta dive in one of these days. If you are listening to my voice at this point and you haven't subscribed to the Captain Eric YouTube channel, you should just do yourself a favor and hit that button along with the like button of this video. It doesn't cost you a dime, and it is the best way to show your support. Join the Ready Crew here with me on YouTube. And if you're listening to this in its audio form, you can find the Captain Eric YouTube channel in the podcast description below, or going to YouTube and searching at the Captain Eric. As already mentioned, if you would like to write into the show, you can do so nickelodeonhistory at gmail.com. If you have any sort of questions, suggestions, or experiences with Nickelodeon you'd like to share and have it read out on the air, I can do that for you. If you would like to find me on social media, you can do that. I'm on Instagram at I'm Ready Podcast and on Instagram at SpongeBob Podcast. I'm on there fairly usually, so if you would like to stop by and say hi, it is always appreciated. Speaking of appreciation, if you would like to go the extra mile and support Captain Eric, in a small way, you can find the Redbubble link in the podcast description below where you can find a multitude of different art and logos from Captain Eric that you can put on so many different products, even as small as stickers going all the way to duvet covers or even uh, shower curtains, which I never expect anybody to actually purchase one of those things. But having that ability is certainly nice uh, to have. So I love that Redbubble has that ability to just put whatever art you want on a multitude of different products. So uh, I really appreciate them. And anything that comes in through my projects, go directly right back into my projects. And it is always appreciated. Stay safe out there. Be kind to one another. And come aboard again to another episode of This Week in Nickelodeon History. I'm here with my friends. Nickelodeon.